Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the 98th live episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Today is a Q&A session, as you know, so let's see who all is here with us. I can see Shubhangi, Aryan, Amita, Arjun, Abhishek, Alok, Vaibhav, Dhruvit, Nitish, Twilight, Smart Money, RTK, Radha, Binayak, Shubhang, Samir, Uttam, Shubhang, Lavish, Arin, Akash Rathor, Avinash, Sudhir, Keshav, Tanushri, Amar, Debosman, Sri Hari, Aditya, Chiching, Tejas, Karan, Sanjukta, Shankhajit, Lavish, uh, Shrishan, Aditya, Sanjukta, Tripti, uh, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Thank you for being here. So let's get right into it as always. Let's begin. So as always, I've got so many questions and I've picked a bunch of these and let's see how many I can answer today. So let us get into it with question number one. This is by Kedar. What are your views on Dr. S. Jayshankar's statement that India buys less oil in a month than Europe buys in an afternoon? He also said that we are worried about human rights issues in the US. Is India enjoying the best diplomatic position currently in the history of the past 71 years? Uh, yeah, so Dr. S. Jayshankar made a very factual statement when he was being, I think, when he was being questioned by journalists about India buying Russian oil. Uh, so that's what he said, that we buy less oil in a month from Russia then Europe buys in an afternoon, and I think it's a very factual statement. It's the best possible response to these annoying and condescending questions that American journalists are quite want to ask, you know. So it's a factual thing that is said, and it's, uh, it's absolutely correct. He also said that India is worried about human rights, about the human rights situation in the U.S., while the Americans have had this long uh, tradition of lecturing India about the democracy and human rights and such like. When the fact is that the human rights situation in the US is also very concerning. You have these shootings, school shootings, mass shootings, terrible, terrible things that happen routinely in the US. It's a routine thing in the US. It happens uh, almost every, every day, every other day. I mean, if you look at the statistics of gun violence in the US, it's terrifying. Right, and you also have these uh, issues of racial profiling of of people of Indian origin being targeted. Recently, a couple of Sikh gentlemen were were beaten up or something like that happened very recently, just a just a day or two before S. Jayshankar, Dr. Jayshankar was there in the U.S. Maybe when it when he was there, I'm not sure exactly what the chronology is, but yeah, that happened very recently. And you have the appalling situation that the Native Americans are enduring. They've been enduring for, for decades, for centuries. And when it comes to the plight of the African-American people, the black people, we know it's very well documented how terrible it is. And that's why the entire Black, black Lives Matter movement emerged. So that's why it emerged. You know the racial profiling that the American cops do. If you are black, you are way more, you have a much higher likelihood of being shot for no reason by an American cop and so on. And that situation persists even today. So the human rights situation in the US is indeed very worrying. And why should India not express concern about that? When the US has this tendency of unnecessarily poking into our internal affairs. So 
for the first time like you're saying in 71 years or whatever whatever the time time period is for the first time india is talking to the us in this manner it's giving back as good it is as it gets so it's a very good development i can see very good uh, assertive language that is being used thus far it is words but it has to be backed up by action so i'm not saying that we need to take certain actions about us human rights or whatever but india needs to uh, be more assertive geopolitically in its own region first of all so you need to back up words with actions it's it, words if they are taken alone they just they just empty words they just empty bravado i'm not saying that's what we are doing i think we are being very assertive right now geopolitically in the indian ocean region so we are witnessing a very different india now india is changing india is way more confident this current government has probably the best foreign policy i have ever seen in the past 70 years we are looking after our own national interests for a change for the first time in forever so yes india is doing well uh, india's diplomacy is uh, pretty robust right now we i would like to see the indian diplomatic core being expanded beyond the current numbers because we need ma- many more diplomats to engage effectively with the world i mean we need a diplomatic core that is caress- that is uh, commensurate with the size and clout that india should have I and mean, the size that india has so uh, these developments are very welcome very positive very good for india and it needs to continue shankarjit says greetings from washington dc greetings sir uh, does putin's long term objective seem to be capturing the whole of ukraine and extending the russian borders to the carpathian mountains so that russia doesn't spend a lot on securing its current long borders on a flat land uh we're not quite sure what the overall long term objectives of mr putin are obviously he he desires to secure uh, russia's national interest he is certainly uh, concerned about the never ending eastward expansion of nato and american influence and clearly ukraine was a red line so what he has done is is that he has made ukraine more or less off limits for nato the nato uh, influence is there of course they are pushing in arms and ammunition that's what we hear uh, anti tank missiles uh, spy, uh, javelin missiles stinger missiles and so on so they are fomenting an insurgency in ukraine which could uh, go on for some time so we don't quite know what the long term objectives are it, it looks like the russians have withdrawn for now from kiev and all, and all that so it looks like the uh, like the it looks like the russian advance on kiev was most likely a diversion for what it was doing in eastern ukraine in the donbas region maybe the objective is to completely secure donbas and get rid of the azov uh, neo nazi elements uh, to properly denazify ukraine perhaps maybe that's the objective and clearly ukraine is no, no longer going to be to a significant extent under western influence so ukraine essentially has become a no go territory for the west uh so we still not quite sure what the objectives are i mean the russian military has the firepower and the capability to take over the country of ukraine in in a matter of 48 hours they have they have not even used the air force and they have not even tried to take over large parts of the interiors of uh, central ukraine western ukraine etc so as of today it looks like 
there is a limited objective maybe it is uh, the donbas region eastern ukraine the uh, the coastal regions of ukraine the, that abut the black sea so maybe that's the objective we still this is still a work in progress it is it is an evolving situation so it's it's been quite difficult to predict the moves that mr putin's going to make that the russian military is going to make initially it looked like maybe he's not going to invade ukraine then he made he did the invasion it looked like they're going to take over the country in, in 48 hours that's how powerful the military is and then it's dragged on for a very long time there has been uh, there have been all these conflicting reports but we know exactly where the uh, russian military has has a lot of control so maybe right now it looks like the objective is to control the eastern part of ukraine so let's let's take a look at the map so, so that uh, you know we we are clear about what we're talking so this here is ukraine and uh, the donbas region is luhansk donetsk etc that's the eastern region of ukraine there is kharkiv etc also which is in the east and then there's the coastal regions of ukraine so the crimea peninsula has already been taken over by russia in a few years ago and then you have the coastal cities of mariupol and odessa kherson is also near the coast and all so maybe they're going to eventually take over these these regions because that is very that's prime real estate especially maritime real estate it, it gives them a great deal of control over the black sea region so it's still an evolving situation and let's see how it goes right now we not quite sure we can tell i can say at a big picture level that he intends to secure the long term uh, national interest of russia but how exactly he's going to go about doing that we're not quite sure as of today sanket says uh, how likely is it that russia will attack or invade finland or sweden in a similar manner keeping in mind the recent developments of these two countries inching towards nato uh i believe see it's it's very it's very dangerous it's foolhardy to make predictions in geopolitics because we never know what's going on in the in in a leader's mind right i mean the secret of power is to never let anyone know what's really going on in your mind what you're really thinking so that is one of the secrets of power so and and mr putin is really good he's 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 a, he's a past master at, at at these games so we're not quite sure what he intends to do now i would say that at present it would not be a very good a very good idea for mr putin to go and start invading finland and sweden when even ukraine is not uh, is not completely secured right now so let's again go to the map and 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 see where where these regions are so so where is russia russia is over here as you can see moscow if you can see my mouse pointer that's moscow the, this is the western border of 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 russia so where's finland finland is this big country here in the nordic regions which borders russia for sure and then you have sweden which doesn't have a common border with russia in, in, unless you factor in this enclave of kaliningrad so sweden doesn't quite have a border with russia finland does so it would not be very difficult for the russians to invade to to launch an invasion of finland but the finland is the the people of finland the government is quite well prepared for such an eventuality uh, they are able to i mean i mean 
they can mobilize the entire adult male population, maybe even women may be involved in this, and they have uh, been preparing for such an eventuality for for decades. So it may not be as easy uh, as easy as it is to say, to speak about it, but it is certainly something they could do. But is it something that's advisable? I mean, if you start invading multiple countries, it's going to lead to a domino effect. It's going to lead to a significant escalation. NATO may may get involved at this point if you start invading Finland and Sweden. Uh, so it may not be the best thing. You know, it may lead to a First World War, Second World War kind of situation. So maybe it is not the most advisable thing to do. Yeah, it is true that Finland is inching towards NATO. Sweden is also inching towards NATO. They are both expressing their desire to maybe join NATO in the very near future. That possibility is right now very much on the table. The thing is, maybe Finland and Sweden are not that much of a problem for Russia. Ukraine is a, a territory that was historically part of Russia. It was also part of the USSR. And that was most likely a red line that Mr. Putin could not allow the uh, the Americans to, to cross. Maybe Finland and Sweden, he may not look at them in that manner, but it still remains to be seen. So I think, I'm, I'm, I believe it's a little unlikely right now for a Sweden or Finland invasion to happen as long as Ukraine is not yet fully secure. So most likely, it's, it's most probably it's unlikely that it will happen anytime soon. Swarup says, it's for the first time that China has claimed a troop disengagement in the hot springs region in eastern Ladakh. It's not clear why China has claimed that, that disengagement has been completed. Numerous rounds of diplomatic and military talks, uh, but India and China have been unable to end the nearly 22-month standoff. Some news sources countered China's claims, saying that not all areas of contention at the hot springs have been cleared. What would have been the reason of this disengagement, according to you? What might they be planning? Are we going to see another face-off like June 2020 or something big is coming? So the Chinese are claiming. So the, we had this uh, big standoff over there, 22 months, like you say, most likely. Yeah, Most likely that's how long it has taken, give or take. So uh, what we have is the situation of, of this large mass of troops on both sides facing each other. It's a standoff, like you have in those uh, cowboy movies. You know, two sides standing with guns drawn at each other, that sort of thing. So that's what's been going on. It's it's a pretty tense situation over there. It's all been uh, triggered off by the Chinese, by their actions, by their provocative actions, by their trying to uh, encroach into Indian territory. So it is the Chinese who have created the situation. In the, in the, in the Indian side responded properly by sending adequate numbers of troops to to face the Chinese. And so we have had this standoff going on for a very long time, for nearly two years. Now, uh, the two sides are trying to calm the tensions to, a, to an extent and to disengage to a certain extent to reduce the number of troops so that the situation calms down. And I'm not sure what's been agreed, but the Chinese have made the claim that the disengagement has been completed, which is clearly not true. So the Chinese always have this this is a tactic they use repeatedly. They say that we have uh, done everything from our side. We have uh, fulfilled all the terms of the agreement, but they will keep, they will they will actually not do that. But they'll make the claim that we have done everything. And then they'll put the onus on India for continuing tensions. So there is a tactic, a strategy that the Chinese have been using 
for decades, not only with India, with other countries. The Chinese cannot be trusted. Right? So maybe they want to keep the pressure on India. That's that's it's not maybe, it's 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 a certainty. They want to keep India under pressure. The Chinese have always wanted that. That's that's the reason why they have never agreed to demarcate the border. There have been these endless rounds of talks and negotiations about the border issue, but they want to keep this border issue open and simmering so that they can keep on needling India, pressurizing India from various locations as per their whims and desires to keep India permanently on the back foot. On the one side, they use Pakistan as as a counterweight to India or as a destabilizing factor. And on the other hand, they have this open border issue, which is uh, still pending. And that's why they want to keep India uh, constantly under pressure because they fear the rise of India. Obviously, they they fear that. So uh, what may they be planning? We don't know. But it is certainly possible that they may start something else in the coming days, weeks, months. It's possible. See, we have to understand the bigger picture perspective. Very soon, there's going to be, I mean, in the next, uh, maybe within two years, most likely, there's going to be a general election in India, a parliamentary election. And the Chinese would like to see a weak government come to power in India. They would not want to see the NDA government remain in power under somebody like Mr. Modi or somebody else possibly i'm just i'm just guessing they would not like a strong leader in india mr modi is most likely the strongest leader india has had in decades as we can see from the geopolitical moves from the diplomacy and all that that's going on india has right now become the center of diplomacy people from all over the world diplomats world leaders coming to india for various purposes so india is in a very strong position right now india is secure militarily as well we have uh all the possible, everything we need right now to to be in, in a good position to defend ourselves against any Chinese uh, malafide actions. So the Chinese do not like this. They want India to be weak. And for India to be weak, they, they we would need a weak leader to be the, the leader of the country, the PM of the country. So they would like to see Mr. Modi lose the election in 2024. And maybe some weak coalition government with some um, with some random local leader should become the prime minister. Like we, the situation we had in the 1990s when you had governments that lasted three months, four months, and some very weak prime ministers were in place who messed up the country very badly. I will not take names at this point, but uh, we know who they are. So that's the kind of thing they want. So how do you engineer... That sort of situation where this this government falls and a weak government comes in, into power, you do that by by trying to by by creating a setback for India. So, for instance, if there is a military confrontation and, and hypothetically India doesn't do well and they lose and India loses some territory, the Chinese are able to gain some territory, which would be a humiliation for the Indian government and the Indian army. Then possibly the government could lose the next general elections and somebody else would come into power. And that's what the Chinese would love to see happen, right? So it is possible that they may be planning some kind of mischief along the border in the coming year or two years maximum. Yeah, maybe something along the Siliguri corridor or something. So we have to be, I mean, I am sure the government factors all of these things, takes all of these things into account. They will understand these things much better than someone like me. They have experts and all that. So uh, I'm sure we are aware of this. 
but i'm just saying that this is something the chinese may be planning they may be wishing uh, i am not sure if it's a very good idea for the chinese to start a 1962 like situation with india india is far better prepared today so the chinese could end up losing far more the, than they were hoping to gain i mean we are very well prepared vis-a-vis the chinese in their in their position in tibet whatever military uh, camps etc they have in tibet in chinese occupied tibet are very much visible they, they are very well known and uh, and we know exactly what what they have where they where they have it in case of hostilities it would not be difficult for us to take everything out pinpoint from long distance ranges and and you know inflict a much bigger uh, humiliation than china would be would be hoping to inflict upon india but it is something that we have to be aware of it is something that could be in the offing and we have to be prepared for it we cannot take the chinese for granted we can never ever be complacent i am sure we know our our government our armed forces they are all very capable very professional they would know about this but it is a possibility so yeah we may see another face off in the coming days weeks months maybe a couple of years or maybe something even bigger and i am sure we are adequately more than adequately prepared for that okay a couple of questions about military coups arnav says what is a military coup any chances of it ever happening in india and chetan says good day can you please help us understand what leads to a military coup in a nation and why governments aren't able to prevent it can this ever happen in stable democracies like india us canada etc are these engineered by foreign interests interesting question what's a coup I've, i don't think i've ever taken a question like this in detail so a coup can happen in certain countries there are certain conditions preconditions that need to be met for a coup to happen there are essentially three preconditions that need to be met, to be met for a coup to be successful in a country first of all the social and and economic conditions of the target country must be such that the political participation is confined to a very small fraction of the population which means that the majority of the people are not are are disempowered they are not politically active at most maybe they can vote once in a while but the actual political participation as in governance etc is confined to a very small fraction of the population there is a very small elite that that controls all the power if you have such a situation then a country is ripe for a coup that's only one of the preconditions number 2 your target country must be substantially independent substantially independent and the influence of foreign powers foreign actors inside its internal political life must be relatively limited so there is a second precondition of a coup being likely to succeed and thirdly your target country where you want to do a coup it must have a political center which means the power must be centralized if there are multiple centers of power these must be structured politically not ethnically or linguistically right so these are three preconditions for a coup for an internal coup which means from for internal actors to carry out a coup successfully so the social and political condi- the economic conditions must be such that uh, the people are marginalized and there's a very small fraction of the population that has all the power all the benefits does india meet this 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 particular criterion no india is not that sort of a country where you have this huge disparity in power people are not that marginalized the economy is getting better if the economy is good 
if it is improving then people are usually not uh, discontented and there is a reasonable amount of political partition among the people of india right so an internal coup will not succeed given this this first precondition secondly the target state must be substantially independent and the influence of foreign powers foreign actors must be inside internal politics must be relatively limited well does india meet this precondition india is reasonably substantially independent but there i would say there is a great amount of foreign interference in internal affairs of india whether you realize it or not even in indian politics one well there are allegations that certain indian political parties are funded from abroad certain well yeah essentially that right there are these ngos also in india that gave, that acquire lots of funds from abroad for various political and other activities so there is a problem for india thirdly the target state must have a political center it must be centrally run and if there are multiple centers of power these must be identified these must be structured politically not ethnically or linguistically in india we have a central government but we have very strong state governments as well we have this federal structure and these multiple political centers are structured ethnically and, and linguistically not politically and therefore it's impossible for a coup to succeed in india impossible an internal coup to succeed in india but now we come to precondition let's revisit precondition 2 that the country must be substantially free of foreign interference substantially independent and there must be very little foreign interference in its internal affairs in the case of india that is not true there is pol- for foreign political interference in india's internal affairs i mean you see certain things happening in coordination in india coordinated events happening across india in various parts of india at the same time it could be the sign of foreign interference in indian internal affairs it's it's just speculation but you know there are no coincidences in in the world so uh so overall if you look at all three preconditions then india is is not a country where a coup can happen because mainly of the third precondition that there is no actual political center in india there is a central government but its powers are limited state governments have substantial powers and state governments these political centers in the states are structured linguistically and ethnically i mean if you look at the various states as different ethnicities which is not quite true but if even if we do it that way then you have we certainly have linguistic divisions right so every state is has a certain state language so these divisions these political divisions are structured linguistically and therefore we have this so therefore this third precondition certainly cannot be satisfied and that is one of the major reasons this this third precondition that's one of the major reasons why india is never going to be a country where a coup can succeed i mean there hypothetically possibly hypothetically there could be attempts but it it can never succeed in a country like india because it's a, such a diverse country with so many different centers of power which are structured linguistically not politically hmm? so that's the thing but there is certainly a significant amount of political interference of a foreign interference in india's internal affairs in a variety of ways in a variety of ways there are certain things that the indian government is unable to do right now it is because of foreign political interference let's just give an example that we spoke about just a few minutes ago the americans keep on insisting keep on expressing concern about human rights in india right 
isn't that foreign interference in indian internal affairs who the hell are they to talk about human rights in india when their own situation is so bad right i mean the the first principle of of uh, the rules based global order is non interference in other countries sovereign matters but the us com- consistently and continuously disregards this and we know that they they constantly interfere in the internal affairs of other countries we know what they did in, in ukraine in 2014 they carried out a political coup in ukraine those three preconditions were more or less uh, valid they were more or less met and the coup was carried out with external help not internal help so yeah so that's how it is so, so that's how a coup essentially happens it's a fascinating topic there is a book here where is it you see this red book here that is the handbook on how to carry out a coup so uh, so if you want to carry out a coup in in a in a country in some some hypothetical country then read this book it's a manual on how to do it it's by dr edward luthwak who has appeared on my podcast in the past right so that's what i can say in brief about this okay kevin says the americans and the russians have military bases in alaska and chukotka respectively and both of these areas are very close to each other so have there been military tensions along this part of the two nations who controls the chukchi sea and the bering sea interesting question let's go to the map here is the map where is the region in question so this here is the chukchi sea and here is the bering sea this is alaska which currently belongs to the us it was sold to the us by the russians in the 19th century and here you have the easternmost part of russia so as you can see these two regions are very closely uh, very in in close proximity geographically so let's see where uh, where these two nations meet more or less okay so here we are and again it jumps somewhere else okay so this is the region now google maps is misbehaving but let's make it behave so this here are the diomede islands we have the little diomede island here and we have the large diomede island there so the smaller island is uh, it is under us control it, it's part of the united states it's part of the alaskan region and the big diomede island it belongs to russia so the the distance between these two islands is about maybe 2 kilometers 2 2 2 and 1/2 kilometers maybe so that's one region where the two countries come face to face i mean you can you can stand on the beach in and you can see the other other country from there so that's one region then you have the uh, then you have the bering strait Wow, Google Earth is jumping around. So this is the Bering Sea, and this here is the Bering Strait. So this island here, it belongs to the U.S. As you can see, it's part of Alaska. And over here, you actually have the Bering Island, which gives its name to the Bering Strait. So this is this over here. You have a considerable distance, maybe a few hundred kilometers between these two. countries over here so in the past in the past during the cold war there there used to be these uh, patrols that the two countries would undertake sea patrols by ships and uh, 
aerial patrols using heavy strategic bombers <coughs> excuse me and the two uh, militaries would often come into contact the the air forces would like routinely come into contact and the pilots would even wave at each other sometimes it, there would be tense situations where the planes would come too close and there would be aggressive flying and all that it's even happened that ships have collided submarines have collided that sort of thing so the situation in the past during the days of the ussr and the cold war used to be often quite tense these days also i am sure there there are tensions but the tension the the uh, intensity of the tensions seems to be lesser currently now, when we talk about the diomede islands i believe in the 1980s a us swimmer actually swam across this this uh, the distance between the, the two islands and the event was uh, welcomed by the leadership of the of both the countries so that's the situation where we have today that we have today who controls the chukchi sea it's an open sea it's international water so nobody actually controls it but both navies would patrol it you would have uh, surface naval vessels and submarines as well and the same goes about the bering sea it is open waters international waters so nobody officially controls it but both navies would have significant presences over here especially nuclear submarines and such like vessels so that in brief is the situation in this region very interesting uh, part of the world uh, ramalakshmi this is a question by ramalakshmi first of all i would like to thank ramalakshmi ramalakshmi thank you for your for for posting the the time stamps after all of these sessions i really appreciate it and i would like to also thank the other people who have posted time stamps in the past like akash bullar and harshit and whoever else has been doing that thank you very much all of you and especially ramalakshmi who is doing it currently thank you so much i really appreciate it so what is the question uh, 10 days back i saw a tweet in which it, it's a detailed video about the indo aryan migration where he speaks that The Aryan invasion theory is debunked decades ago, and he presents various documents and genetic studies that. And he also took your video on the Aryan invasion. He proved various statements wrong by showing different documents. He even mentioned out of India theory is not true completely. And please throw some clarification or make a video. Could you please please look at that video? It okay. So yeah, I've heard that somebody has made some kind of a, of a of a response video or rebuttal video to the various. videos that i have on the aryan invasion myth i haven't seen it i don't believe that everybody needs to be responded to so uh, and i believe it's a longish video 1 hour plus that's what i hear and and i believe the title of the video is about when did sanskrit enter india or something like that and apparently he's trying to prove that sanskrit entered entered into india at a certain date range based on genetic evidence so i have not seen the details but that premise seems ridiculous to me because you cannot link language and genetics there is no linkage between language culture and religion and genetics your genetics cannot tell anyone what language you speak what religion or culture you follow i am speaking english right now does it mean that i have english genetics it doesn't mean that right so there is absolutely no connection between language and genetics culture and genetics religion and genetics so just because there is a certain amount of genetic evidence for whatever doesn't mean that a certain culture or religion or language came along with it it doesn't mean that at all so the entire premise of basing 
the entry of a language into a region based on genetic influx is completely baseless. It's 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 completely in, incorrect. Now I have not seen the video. I have not seen what uh, arguments he has made. I don't. I don't. I've not seen what data he has presented. Uh, maybe in the future I may do it. I like I said. I you don't have to respond to everybody who comes across and tries to respond to you. That is gonna essentially drag you. It's it's gonna make you follow their agenda. I also hear that some people have been speaking on my behalf and saying that I'm open to a debate. I have never said that. So uh, maybe I will look into it in the future. I these days I don't watch long videos. I simply don't have the time. I haven't seen a long form podcast in years, in like a couple of years. So. So I'll see. I will. I will consider watching the video if 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 I get the time and maybe maybe if it is worth responding to, then I may respond to it. So let's see how it goes. I will. I will certainly take this uh, as something I can address, maybe in the future. Okay, Kolkata guy says I'm from Varanasi. <laughs> Kolkata guy from Varanasi. All right. Uh, in one of your videos, you were talking about the Celtic goddess Danu and her origin in India. Could you please tell us a bit about that? This is a very interesting topic. Very ancient connections that originate in India. So, uh, I'm not sure how many of you know it, but in the Rig Veda, our oldest known text, the oldest known literature in humanity. So, in this lit- in this text, in the Rig Veda, we have the mention of a goddess called Danu. She is a primordial river goddess. She's a river goddess, right? And she is the progenitor of the Danava clan of ancient Indians. They are Asuras. They are, they are termed as Asuras. And they are called the Danavas because they are the descendants, the children of Danu. So Danu is a river goddess. Her descendants, her children, her offspring are the Danavas who are Asuras, and that's the story. And and in the Rig Veda, she is the mother of the great sea serpent Vritra. Vritra is the great sea serpent who encircled the ocean and cut off access to to water to all humanity. And, and, And the great warrior, the great lord Indra had to fight this great sea monster and defeat him and free the waters of the world. So that is the mythical mythological story that we have. Maybe it's it's something that originates in some real life event that must have happened very long ago. Ago, and it was it was mythologized in that manner in in in, in the form of a sea monster and all that. But Danu was the mother of Vritra, this great sea monster in the Rig Veda, right? And she was the progenitor of the Danava clan of ancient Indians of Asuras, and apparently the Danavas were kind of kind of little bit slightly evil and there was this clash this war and they 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 lost the war they lost the battle and they were forced into exile out of india and that's where the story ends we don't know what happened to them what happened to these people the danavas now if we look at geography it tells you a very interesting story so let's go back to the map let's remove this for now so if we look so we talk about ukraine these days right Let's go to the city of Kiev. Kiev, K-I-E-V, Kiev. So this city sits on a certain river. That river is called the Dnieper. Dnieper. So there's a whole bunch of rivers in Eastern Europe that are named Don, Danube, 
Dnieper, Dneister, Donetsk, and so on and so forth. And the linguistic origin of all of these rivers is the word Danu, the river goddess, the ancient river goddess. So it looks like these river names that trace the eastward migration of a bunch of people who worshipped this river goddess Danu. Maybe it was the Danavas who were expelled out of India, forced out, forced into permanent exile, and they went westwards gradually. And whichever great river they found, they named it after their ancestor, the great lady Danu. Right? And the, uh, the word for water in the ancient Scythian language, the Saka language, was Danu. And there, there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, so even in the, I think, old Persian language, the, the name for drop or water was Danu. And, and certainly that's how it is. So you can see that they, there is this significant influence of Danu in Eastern Europe, in among the Scythian peoples, among the all the Indo-European peoples. And these river names, they seem to trace the westward, the gradual westward migration of a bunch of people who revered the goddess, the, the Rigvedic goddess Danu. Right, And now we find that if we go all the way west to the island of Ireland, if we look at their ancient foundational story, their mythological foundational story, so the according to that found founding story of Ireland, the first peoples of Ireland were called the people of the goddess Danu, the Tuatha de Danan. That's what that's that was the name, and they revered the ancient their mother goddess, who was a river goddess called Danu. Right? I mean, can this ever be a coincidence? So it's clear that a bunch of people went out of India, migrated westwards out of India, and gradually made their way across Europe from east to west, and whichever great river they found in Europe. And they said they must have settled on along these rivers for some time. They named all of these rivers after goddess Danu. And eventually it looks like they ended up all the way west in Ireland, where the people of Ireland considered Danu to be their progenitor mother goddess, the river goddess. So that is the story of the goddess Danu, the Irish goddess Danu, which seems clearly to be the same as the Rigvedic goddess Tanu. I'm sure there were several centuries between the, the events that led to the expulsion of the Danava people from India and their eventual settlement all the way west in Ireland. Maybe, maybe that took more than a thousand years. Possibly. We don't quite know. I'm sure if we do the right kind of research, we may be able to trace back the chronology of the migration, possibly. But that in, in, in a nutshell is the story. A Rigvedic goddess who ends up in Ireland as the mother goddess of the Irish people. Isn't that fascinating? Tejas says, how can we deduce the Kushans were Indian when Kadpis one united five clans of the UHE and then defeated the Greeks and the Parthians and the UHE are of Chinese origin? I found this info in ancient India by R.C. Majumdar. Okay, very good question. So, uh, like I have said, I, I mean, I have recommended R.C. Majumdar in the past. I have said it's a very good uh, source of information about ancient India. Now we have to all, I've also put a caveat in there. I said that these books were written almost a century ago. And therefore, they would reflect the knowledge that was, that was available at that time, a hundred or so years ago, maybe 80 years ago. That is very old knowledge. 
much of it is outdated the books are very still very good reference books for information about ancient india but we have to always keep in mind that this information is outdated in in some in some cases in many cases perhaps right so yeah the 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 people the kushan the ancestors of the kushan the chinese called them the uhe so does it mean they were chinese does it mean they were chinese because today we know them by a chinese name does it mean that they were of chinese origin obviously not that is not a logical connection i mean the chinese can call the indians yindu i think the name the chinese have currently for india is yindu and there would be have some name for the indian people also so because there is a chinese name for indians does it, does it mean that we are in, we are chinese now the the uh, russians found this pit grave culture ancient 5000 year old pit graves the graves they look like pits and the russian name for the word pit is yamna so they called these people the yamnaya people does it mean the yamnaya people of 5000 years ago they were russians because there we we use a russian name to call them to 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 uh, for them today no just because we use a russian name for that for that clan of people doesn't mean they were russians and similarly if the ancestors of the kushan kushans were called the uhi by the chinese it doesn't mean they were chinese it's just a chinese name for that we don't have to use the chinese name for that right so the most likely the ancestors of the people who were later known as the kushans most likely they were the ancient tushar people and the english speaking historians they call them the tokarians because they don't want to use a sanskrit word so don't use the word tushar use the word tokarian which obviously is based upon the word tushar so most likely the ancestors of the kushan people who let me show on the map they most uh, where they, where did they live they lived in the tarim river basin region and present day sinjiang where is the tarim river this is the hotan river the tarim river is here i believe which river is this this is the yarkhand river all right all right where is that where is the desert tarim river let's let's look for the tarim river yeah it's currently in china currently where is it where is it looks like i found it yeah this is the tarim river so in the tarim river basin that's where the ancestors of the kushans lived and they were most likely known as the tushara people and they were of indian origin how do we know we find all these tarim basin mummies there and the mummies look kind of european you know they are like tall 6 feet tall etc some of them are over 6 feet tall they seem to have fair skin many of them have red hair or blonde hair right so they look like they are european in in ethnicity but when we examine the dna of the males they are almost exclusively r1a1a which is an indian origin lineage so maybe there was some intermarriage between eurasian peoples and indians or something like that which produced the tushara people and so on but the but the uh, ethnicity was very clearly indian the patrilineal lineages haplogroups were decidedly of indian origin and if you look at the mummies they don't they don't look chinese at all 
they don't look Chinese in any way whatsoever. So this word Yuechi, which is the Chinese use and which historians use nowadays for the ancestors of the Kushans, it is very misleading. It is a Chinese term for a foreign people, for a people that the Chinese considered to be foreigners, Western barbarians. So that's what it is. That Yuechi were not Chinese. The Kushans were not Chinese. They were Indians. I just gave you genetic evidence. You can look up. You can Google the Tarim Basin mummies. You can see how they look. You can. They are very well preserved. Their facial features are very clearly apparent. They are not Chinese in any way whatsoever. One could call the Tushara people, the Tokarians, as one could regard them as the easternmost Scythians. So the Scythians were an Indo-Iranian group. They were of Indian origin. That is also very well known. They were also uh, almost exclusively of the R1A1A lineage, the Scythians, and similarly for the Kushans. So there you have it. They were of Indian origin. They would have mixed mixed blood because they because they traveled around and they would have inter intermingled with various other peoples. But overall, they were of Indian ethnicity and clearly of Indian culture. Because when the Kushans re-entered India, after several thousand years, they had no trouble assimilating with the Indian population. There was no cultural, religious strife whatsoever. It was the same culture, the same, more or less the same ethnicity. Pratik says, now thank you Pratik, I appreciate it. So the question is, do you think the US military obsession, the new obsession with aliens is just to give importance to the newly created space force? and create unnecessary fear in their Congress and Senate to increase the military budget through an unseen and unknown adversary also to, the, to boost their war economy. It's possible. So apparently aliens only, only appear in the US. I mean, wh why hasn't India seen any alien visitation? Why don't we get videos from India about aliens flying over Bangalore, Bangaluru, or, or Chennai, or Mumbai? Or, or Guwahati, or Imphal, or Delhi, or Ladakh. Why do we only see these UFOs in US airspace? Why is that? So the Americans are right now, in the last couple of years, they've been releasing very, very grainy, low-quality black and white videos of, of supposedly alien aircraft, spacecraft, doing... Uh, defying the laws of physics and all that. I mean, why is all of this footage so grainy? Why is it so black and white? They have the best equipment, the US Air Force and the Americans. They have the best cameras. But they only produce black and white grainy footage. Why is that? Why is that? So it, it doesn't make much sense to me, but it's very interesting that uh, they are doing this. They have created the Space Force. I believe it was President Trump who initiated the creation of the Space Force. And obviously, the Space Force will need a good budget, a few hundreds of billions of dollars, possibly. Maybe if not hundreds, maybe at least a hundred, maybe I would imagine. So they want money. So they have to create some kind of threat, right? <laughs> so they, uh, and that threat should be something that the public sees, feels, and accepts. Only then will the public accept a large amount of money going into the Space Force. Otherwise, it would look like wasteful expenditure. So maybe that's why they're doing it. I mean, I would be really happy if we actually find evidence of aliens having visited us or, or actively visiting us. That would be great. Nothing would make me happier to see the evidence of first contact between us and another civilization from, an from another star system, maybe. That would be wonderful. 
I mean, nothing would, would would make me happier than that. But thus far, I, I unfortunately have seen no evidence whatsoever that such a thing has happened. I mean, there is evidence. There are claims of UFOs in Africa, in Zimbabwe. And some people claim that if you go to Mount Kailash, you see certain weird activity, lights in the sky and all that. So uh, one does hear all of this, but I'm not quite sure how... Uh, how reliable, how verifiable, how true all of it is. Some of it is intriguing for sure, but there is no undeniable hard evidence. So it's still something that we have to keep an open mind about, but it's still something that I'm, as of now, skeptical about. Pratik says, life forms like, like cryptobiotic endospores and certain bacteria are extremely resistant and evolve at a faster rate to adapt in harsh situations, conditions. Researchers have even discovered new strains of evolved bacteria that were carried unintentionally to the International Space Station and survived there for years. So here's my question. As spacecrafts cannot be sterilized completely, is there a possibility that we have accidentally contaminated Mars with life during space missions before even stepping on Mars? Yes, absolutely. I think it's very likely that we have sent uh, Earth bacteria to Mars and wherever else we have sent spacecraft. It's impossible to thoroughly and 100% sterilize any spacecraft. It's almost, it's, it's impossible. You can never guarantee a hundred percent sterilization of spacecraft, and I'm not sure even if that's the objective when we do that. You know, when we send spacecraft to another planet, so I think it's a guarantee that we have sent Earth bacteria to Mars, and maybe they are surviving there. It's quite possible. Like you said, certain bacteria are very hardy; they don't die. They're very hard to kill off. They can survive in the vacuum of vacuum of space. Recently, an Israeli spacecraft crashed on the moon. It was carrying these tardigrades, these water bears, microscopic animals, which are extremely hardy. They are almost impossible to kill. So it's quite likely they must have survived there. and They would possibly still be alive on the surface of the moon where the spacecraft crashed. So yes, there's a very high... It's almost a guarantee that we have contaminated wherever we have sent spacecraft. Uh, we have sent spacecraft to the surface of uh, Venus, uh, the Venera landers sent by the USSR. I'm not sure if Earth bacteria can survive in that environment on Venus with the incre incredibly high temperatures and pressures and the, and the rain of sulfuric acid, but maybe even there one could possibly see the survival of, of, of Earth bacteria, in which case it would be an interesting situation there right now. So, uh, and we have also sent spacecraft to the surface of Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. So even there, there could be contamination. So wherever you send something on the surface of a planet or into the atmosphere of a planet, there's always a very high likelihood that you're contaminating that place, that planet with Earth bacteria. So it's almost a guarantee that it's already happened. Rahul says, why, why, okay, number seven, you're asking, <laughs> seventh attempt to ask me the question. Why on earth Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel always escapes criticism? He went to suppress the naval mutiny. He brought the, he thought that partition can solve various problems. Uh, the way he treated Subhash Bose was terrible. He supported Gandhi. 
and was brutal to Bose's 1939 election. He also said, Lion is born king, not elected, and so on. Why does no one criticize him? Plus, Dr. Ambedkar agreed that Subhash Bose gave us independence, but Sardar Patel was all for Gandhi Gandhi. Interesting question. Why does uh, Vallabhbhai Patel escape criticism? Well, one of the things he did was he reunified India after the transfer of power from the British to the Congress party. He did a great job of unifying India, of, of forcing in one way or the other all of these little princely states to accede to the dominion to the to the dominion of India. It was then a dominion status. It was not independence. Right? So he unified the country by hook or by crook. So that is one great um, that, is, that is a great debt that we owe to Vallabhbhai Patel. And that's one of the reasons why people are very reluctant to criticize him in any way whatsoever. Because was it not for his incredible efforts at that time, post-1947, 15th August, India would be a deeply fragmented country. It would not be a country. It would be a bunch of little kingdoms. That's what the British wanted. Right? So that's what Mr. Patel did. And that's that's why people are very grateful to him for, for, for that work. Now, now you say that he went out to suppress the naval mutiny. Well, that is very much true. That is very much true. So in 1946, the Indian, the British Indian Navy rebelled against the British. The rebellion spread like wildfire. I have made a separate video on that. You can look it up. The rebellion spread like wildfire. In just a few days, the entire, almost the entire Indian Navy was up in arms against the British. It carried a huge amount of firepower, right? And you had ships all the way from the Gulf of Aden and the Middle East, all the way to Singapore, all the way to the Andamans and in the Indian Ocean region from Vishakhapatnam to Bombay to Karachi. It was called Bombay in those days, Karachi, etc. Where you had all the ships that had declared against the British. Only one or two ships commanders were loyal stooges of the British. Everybody else rebelled. And soon you had riots in places like Bombay and Karachi. And hundreds, if not thousands of innocent civilians were killed by the British. They opened fire. They ordered the police, not the police, but the army to open fire. And this is an event, even possibly in Vishakhapatnam, we're not quite sure. All of this has been suppressed by our, our historians. And if this had spread to the Indian army, the, the, to the British Indian army, it would have given India independence then and there. Because the entire basis of the British control over the Indian subcontinent was the armed forces. They controlled India through the threat of violence. It is the armed forces that gave them power in India. And the armed forces were comprised of Indians. Right? So the Indian Navy rebelled and there was even an, this incident of them uh, opening fire in Mumbai, in Bombay, from the harbor. And the people rebelled. The people were, did rioting in these cities. And very soon it could have spread to the Indian army. Had it spread to the Indian army, it was game over for the British. And we would have, had, we would have snatched independence by force on our terms from the British. So what Mr. Gandhi did is he sent his enforcer Mr. Patel, to Bombay to negotiate with the, with the uh, rebellious uh, naval soldiers, the sailors. And um, 
and Mr. Patel, he assured them that nothing, no action will be taken against you. You will not be court-martialed. You will be given everything, your salary and everything, and uh, things will, will go back to normal. But, but please surrender. Stop this nonsense. And what the soldiers, what the sailors found was that the Indian National Congress, the Congress party was against the naval rebellion. The Muslim League of Jinnah was against the naval rebellion. Only the communists were supporting it. The communists had their own ulterior motives for this because they wished for a great communist revolution in India. So maybe they could take advantage of this. That's why they were supporting the naval rebellion, naval mutiny, whatever you call it. So the Congress party was against it. Gandhi criticized it in very harsh terms. And Mr. Patel was Mr. Gandhi's right-hand man, his enforcer. Mr. Patel did the played the enforcer role in the Congress party. He is the guy who did all the organizational stuff. And he is the guy who maintained discipline in the, in the Congress party. So Gandhi relied on, on just one person for this job. It is Mr. Patel. And Mr. Patel was 100% loyal to Mr. Gandhi. Right? So Mr. Patel went to Bombay. He quelled the rebellion. He persuaded the Indian Navy to give up the rebellion. And as soon as they gave up, as they surrendered their arms and ships and everything, they were thrown into jail. They were all court-martialed. They were imprisoned for months or years. They lost their salaries. They lost their pensions. They lost everything. And no one, no one knows afterwards what happened to those people. It's not been recorded. Our historians have made sure that these events are mostly erased from our history. So Mr. Patel ensured that India did not get independence in 1946. He ensured that India got independence on British terms, not Indian terms. Which is why we had a partition. Had the Royal Navy, the Indian Navy mutiny succeeded, there would have been no partition of India. And the Congress party may most likely not have come to power. It would have been a true revolution and a true independence on Indian terms. So Mr. Patel ensured that did not happen. He ensured that Mr. Gandhi prevailed and Mr. Nehru, Patel, Mr. Nehru prevailed. So, so that is the role that Mr. Patel played. It is not a very good role. So if you wish to criticize Mr. Patel for that, feel free to do that. The, the, the facts are very clear. The facts are very clear. He ensured that the rebellion failed and the promises he made were immediately broken. So these are facts that no one can deny. Atharva says, do you think the current system of government in which we have ceremonial president and governors is a waste of taxpayers' money? Why do we need a ceremonial president in the country or, governor is in, or governors in states? Either the head of state should be a ceremonial monarch whom people know or the head of state must possess real powers. The ceremonial president is really a waste of money like the Rashtrapati Bhavan. PM Modi or any other future PM can also be the head of the state. The president can be subjected to parliamentary confidence. We may create a whole new title such as the Supreme Minister or maybe a Mahamantri who is both head of state and government. So I, I agree to a large extent. These the ceremonial positions are pointless. And you will see that wherever in the world you have these ceremonial positions, it's usually something that you see in formerly colonized countries. So when the transfer of power, all of these formerly colonized countries, they have witnessed a transfer of power on the terms of the colonizing force to some dictator or to some local political group. In India, it was the, the Gandhi Nehru, the Congress party essentially. 
so these people who came to power after the transfer of power from the british to india they were very nostalgic about british rule they loved it so much they loved having a head of state which was the british king at the time so they wished to to create a position like that and that's why they created the ceremonial president who has no actual powers but he is the titular head of state which is a completely pointless thing why do we need that what function does it serve it serves no function no purpose to have such a person so such a such a such a role in governance and similarly for these governors of states who actually can't do much why can't the elected chief minister have all the powers why do we need somebody on top of him or her so if you look at countries that have not been colonized you will see no such thing ever in france the person who is elected president is the head of state there is nobody above him or her there is no titular or ceremonial position in the us the president is the head of state the president is in- indirectly elected by the people indirectly and there is no titular or ceremonial position so why can't india trim down on this fat and and, and re- remove all these unnecessary ceremonial roles which are essentially a waste of taxpayer money i i agree nothing against the people who hold the position of president or whatever many of them are really good people in the past we have had certain very <laughs> people who were not quite fit for any such role but yeah currently of course we have a good person but i agree that these ceremonial positions are pointless Siddharth says, from the size of it, I feel that the capacity of the nuclear warhead that the Brahmos missile can carry is of a low yield tactical size. Okay, you feel that way, sir? Very good. Now, what do we know about the Brahmos? It can carry a warhead which is 200 kilos or 300 kilos, depending on on which Brahmos variant we are talking about. I think the naval Brahmos can carry a, a warhead of 200 kilos. and uh, the air, the land based one or the air based one may have about a, a capacity of 300 kilos i'm not sure which variant has which capacity but there is a 200 kilo capacity and there's a 300 kilo capacity so you feel sir that the this capacity is at, of a low yield tactical nuclear warhead size when you talk about a tactical warhead you're talking about maybe 10 kilotons 20 kilotons 30 kilotons that sort of yield explosive yield right so that's what you say now let me put some facts across if you look at plutonium so typically nowadays we don't use uranium weapons we use plutonium weapons or we use weapons that have uranium as well as plutonium uranium triggers the blast and then there's a secondary fusion reaction that takes place in which plutonium is fused or fissioned or whatever depending on what kind of warhead you're using so if you have a fission bomb it's it's a less efficient bomb then then a thermonuclear warhead which is a fission fusion reaction a primary fission reaction that gives rise to a secondary fusion reaction that's a different kind of thing so if you have a fission bomb it's going to be kind of inefficient now the hiroshima bomb which was very heavy it gave a blast yield of 15 kilotons i believe and the nagasaki warhead gave a yield of 21 kilotons of tnt right now let's take a look at existing thermonuclear warheads that we know about we don't know the kind of thermonuclear warheads we have in our arsenal we india have in our arsenal it has never been made public we have thermonuclear warheads for sure now let's take a look at a few american 
thermonuclear warheads. So there is the W76 warhead whose weight is 164 kilograms. It has a blast yield of 100 kilotons. That is massive. That is not a small low yield tactical warhead. That's a strategic kind of blast. I mean, strategic tactical depends on how far you send it. But so that's not a low yield. 100 kilotons. Its weight is 164. You can easily put it inside a Brahmos. The W89 warhead of the Americans, it has a weight of about 150 kilos. Its yield is 200 kilotons, which is massive. Twice that of the W76. Then you have the W87 nuclear warhead, which is a thermonuclear warhead. All three of these are thermonuclear warheads. So the W87 has a weight of 200 kilos. It has a yield of 400 kilotons of TNT, which is massive. So all three of these warheads can easily fit inside any Brahmos missile. So that's not low yield. Assuming India also has thermonuclear warheads that are similar to these W uh, family of, of warheads of the US, then we would also be able to place a high yield thermonuclear warhead inside a Brahmos missile right? Possibly which has a yield of 400 or 500 kilotons of TNT, almost half a megaton of TNT if, if you have developed that sort of warhead. So the Brahmos is not going to carry a low yield tactical warhead. It's going to carry a massive sub-megaton nuclear warhead, most likely. There you have it. Next question. Shri Nidhi says, is it possible in India to see private defense companies, including R&D like Supergiants, Lockheed Martin, General Atomics, within the next 8 to 10 years? Um, see, when it comes to these massive Supergiants like Lockheed Martin, General Atomics, they are very mature organizations with very mature technology that has been developed over decades. So it takes time for your technology, defense manufacturing technology, to mature. So for instance, India is developing all these uh, long-endurance drones, similar to the Reaper and Predator drones that the Americans have. We are developing our own uh, family of drones, the Rostam drone it's called, or whatever it is. So that is the first iteration of the technology. Now you take it further, you create new variants of this with higher payloads, higher endurance, higher altitude or whatever. So it takes time for this to happen. It is certainly possible to create a mature drone manufacturing ecosystem or artillery manufacturing ecosystem or whatever it is in a decade or so. Most likely two decades. We have DRDO, we have HAL, HAL which have been in place for decades. So they could evolve into super giants maybe in the next 10 years, if this, if sufficient funding is made available. So I believe we're going to see the emergence of a defense manufacturing ecosystem in India over the next decade, two decades. Uh, some of these firms may remain small if they are producing some specialized spare parts or whatever. Some of these firms could become super giants in the next 10, 20 years, depending on the amount of investment, the amount of funding, and whether they are like HL or DRD or something. So you could see a whole range of companies coming up. I believe as of today, as of the next decade, two decades, private companies may not become that big that rapidly. 
but you will see small companies and medium sized companies certainly emerging over the next decade especially in things like ship ship manufacturing submarines and so on some of these companies may, may, may become quite big but super giants will take time maybe maybe 20 years but it could also be accelerated depending on how much funding is available it all depends on the funding we have the manpower we have the brains we have the brightest brains in the country and the technology is all well if you have the brains and you have the engineering expertise you can certainly create the technology so it is possible in the next 10 20 years 8 to 10 years is a little short duration of time but certainly the next 20 years we may see the emergence of a full fledged ecosystem with all kinds of companies private companies small ones medium ones even large ones so i would give it 20 years but in the next 10 years we will certainly see the formation of this ecosystem okay extremas says i wish to push back on you about something your appraisal of the current world's geopolitical state and the motivations of the actors within it is quite realist in nature you often say that if a geopolitical entity can increase its power then it will and this seems to be a natural state of affairs in your estimation of the present geopolitical world you put it in quite amoral terms those who can do yes this seems to be quite in contrast to the way you describe the historical world you state that india has had its wealth stolen to the in the western powers are the transgressors or otherwise bad moral actors can we not by your currently stated morality see this in the same light was the loss of wealth simply a great geopolitical failure on, on india's part according to your previously stated views on geopolitics see it's like this when you study geopolitics when you analyze geopolitics when you study the cause and effect chain when you study the nature of power and the statics and dynamics of power you have to keep it completely amoral it has to be cold and precise you cannot bring in emotions into that into that analysis into that study so that's how you study geopolitics you approach it dispassionately without bringing in emotion and without bringing in a certain perspective a personal perspective that's the only way you can actually understand and study geopolitics and power right so that's why i describe the geopolitical situation etc in these dispassionate terms those who can will do it that's the nature of power now when i talk about india i'm talking from an indian perspective right so that's how it is i obviously am from a country that has suffered a thousand years of all of this invasions destruction ridiculous amounts of destruction horrific genocide that has never been documented it is not even recognized today no historian speaks about it and so on so that is something that is personal to all indians so when you speak about that particular thing there is going to be some emotion to that there's going to be a personal perspective that is not going to be the dispassionate cold perspective that you have when you study geopolitics so when you when you when you talk about the concepts and principles of geopolitics about the nature of power about the dynamics of power uh, and all that you have to describe all of that in very cold clinical amoral terms but when you talk about history and who were the transgressors who was the who were the oppressors who were the victims that is going to be looked upon differently it doesn't mean that one perspective is wrong and one perspective is right both perspectives are correct 
what happened is of course a geopolitical failure there was a lack of political unity when these turkic invasions began and and when the british came into india there was for some time political unity a single political force in india the maratha empire but it unfortunately collapsed over time over a, a certain period of time so they, so you can study it completely clinically completely clinically coldly but you can also from your own perspective say it how it is and there were good actors and bad actors right i mean see it's like this invasions have happened throughout history human history but does an invasion have to lead to cultural genocide and and population genocide is that necessary what the british did was that they engineered hundreds of artificial famines they killed over 100 million indians i mean you can approach that coolly clinically from one perspective that this is what power can do yeah sure but as an indian i'm going to also approach uh, approach it as an indian so and and when india reemerges as a power you may see certain action that india will take uh, maybe to redress certain things that's what countries do let's take a different example for instance in the in the 13th century was it in the in the 12th century we had the emergence of the mongol empire under the great conqueror chinggis khan now he wished to trade with the khwarazm empire to the west to the, to the west of india so he sent a trade delegation a bunch of merchants the merchants were massacred by the by the turks who were ruling khwarazm and all the goods were stolen so then chinggis khan sent three ambassadors to khwarazm to ask for justice so these ambassadors were humiliated one was beheaded and then chinggis khan decided to retaliate so he could have approached it clinically coldly that this is how geopolitics works but he decided to take revenge and and to protect his reputation so there is emotion in that too so it's a, it's a mix of all these factors when you study something you have to do it dispassionately but when you react you can react emotionally so these are two different concepts two different things shimra says can china and india ever be friends and allies not unequal allies like america and britain but rather two equal and ancient civilizations standing together in mutual respect let's understand this mutual respect respect depends on strength you can have an equal relationship between two countries two civilizations that are equally strong then there will be an equal relationship when you have a country like china whose gdp is five times that of india there can no be never there can never be an equal relationship they will they will not respect india why should they respect india why should they respect a nation that has one fifth of their gdp that's not how it works and there are no friendships in geopolitics there are alliances temporary alliances and when things change the alliances may dissolve and america and britain are very unequal allies precisely because of this dynamic the british have no strength today they are not a major geopolitical player their gdp is tiny compared to that of the us it's a fraction of that of the us and that's why the us bosses around britain it the, the americans essentially to put it crudely treat the british as their as their pet poodle right that's how they they treat the british 
it's a vassal state so is australia so is new zealand so is canada so that is the only consideration in geopolitics power your national strength your comprehensive national power your gdp your military the strength of your military and other factors that is what determines how much respect you get that's the only thing no one cares how culturally advanced you are and how many libraries you have and how many forms of classical dance you have and so on no one cares the only consideration in geopolitics is hard power and you cannot have any soft power unless you first have hard power right so that is where it goes so india and china can forget about friendship there can be never there, there is no such thing as friendship alliances can happen but when you have two major powers with a common border they are typically going to be either in an uneasy state of truce or they are going to have hostilities so if india and china are to be allies in the future someday it will happen only if these two civilizations don't have a shared border which can only happen if tibet is restored to independence right and i do not consider india and china to be equal ancient civilizations from a civilizational perspective china is a newcomer to the civilizational club the chinese civilization is about 3 3 1/2000 years old at most india is the oldest known civilization it goes way beyond the bronze age india's civilization has a recorded history of at least 10000 years if not more so there is no question of these two civilizations being equal india has exported so much culture to china china has given india nothing back in return it's not like we want something but the cultural exchange has always been one sided right so from a civilizational perspective india and china are not equal india is way greater than china but from a geopolitical hard power perspective currently china is five times the size of india from the economic strength perspective and militarily also it has a much bigger military look at the number of fighter planes they have look at the number of warships they have look at the number of submarines they have come on right the only thing that uh, restores some sanity and balance is that india possesses the the ultimate weapon which is the nuclear weapon right so uh, there is no not going to be mutual respect unless both civilizations are on equal terms from the perspective of hard power only then there could be a mutual respect kind of situation and maybe an alliance if tibet is is a buffer state in between rajoshi says do you think the james webb telescope would really be able to make ground breaking discoveries which could prove theories related to the multiverse find aliens etc why do countries invest so much money into space exploration what's the end goal since we or a future human would never be able to travel faster than light and reach these places in our lifetimes okay the james webb space telescope multiverse no we cannot see what is beyond our universe we don't even know how big our universe is we can only see a small portion of the universe the actual universe is way bigger than what we can see the observable universe is about about roughly 90 billion light years in diameter roughly give or take right beyond that we don't know what there is so we can't even see our own universe in its entirety so how will we know what's beyond our universe so we can never so the, the multiverse theory is not really sci- scientific it's just philosophy it's just ideology it is not a falsifiable theory and that's why it's not a scientific theory so the james webb telescope will show us nothing about a multiverse aliens possibly 
So this telescope could possibly detect signatures of life in the atmospheres of exoplanets, which are planets planets that uh, surround that that are in orbit around other stars. So possibly from that perspective, we may de- detect indirect evidence of aliens. Possibly. Um, and the groundbreaking discoveries it's going to make are that it's going to be it's going to allow us to peer way back into the into the past of into the past history of the universe. So it it is going to observe the universe in the infrared wavelength, which means that it is going to be able to detect galaxies, essentially the first galaxies that ever formed in our universe's history. So that's going to show us a lot about uh, that we don't know about. Right. So that, in brief, is what it is going to do. We are going to be observing the universe in a totally different wavelength, which is going to open up a whole different dimension of the universe to us. And that's going to happen very soon. It's summertime now. It's, it's almost summer. So maybe in a couple of months, we may have the first proper observations from this telescope, which is going to, I believe, totally revolutionize observational astronomy and the understanding of the universe as we have it. Right. So that's what this telescope is going to do. One very much hopes so. Now, why do countries invest so much into space exploration? Because all of the technologies that go into creating these instruments, these rockets, these spacecraft, these technologies also have other applications. They eventually make their way into the civilian domain, but they also have military applications. And uh, they have all these spin-offs. right? So any new technology you develop, let's say for space, it's going to have a multi multitude of applications in other domains. It's going to make you more technologically advanced and that is always good for any country. The greatest civilizations are the ones throughout history that have been the most technologically advanced. And that is the, one of the lessons of history we learn from Indian civilization itself. India was, for most of its time period from for most of its history the most technologically advanced civilization in the world and that's why it was the greatest economy so this is all uh, interrelated so if you develop new technologies groundbreaking technologies whether it's in space exploration or whatever it helps you technologically and it and if the americans are doing it it means they want to retain their technologically their technological superiority and primacy in the world so that's why they are investing heavily in this and also Nowadays, space has a geopolitical dimension. Very soon, the Americans and the Chinese are going to send humans to the moon. Eventually, they're going to stake claim to to parts of the moon. They're going to say it's part of our, our uh, it's, it's our territory now. The same will happen with Mars eventually. So India also has to ensure it doesn't get left behind in all of these things. So space technology has multiple uses, in, including military uses, which is very important for countries. And also, space has a geopolitical dimension. Uh, future nuclear reactors could use helium-3 from the moon, which is found in great abundance in the lunar soil. So they, they, these are reasons why countries are investing so much in space exploration. Nowadays, even private companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and so on. So that is the end goal. It's not a long-term end goal. It's a more immediate objective to retain our technological, to for, for each country to retain, to advance its technology, to achieve technological primacy in the, in the global pecking order, and to maybe in the future acquire territory beyond the earth, which you can then exploit for various purposes. So these are the reasons why 
countries invest so much into space exploration and that's why India also needs to ensure it doesn't get left behind. Kevin Kevin says, Kevin Chenoy says, the universe expands faster than the speed of light. It's continuously accelerating. If a particular particle is traveling at the speed of the expansion of the universe, isn't it tending to be to become non-existent as far as our universe is concerned? As in the speed at the speed of light, due to time dilation, time freezes, the particle is going in the past. Well, experientially, maybe not as per its path of movement and therefore towards the creation of the universe, therefore approaching that non-existent state. So does the expansion of the universe result in its inevitable annihilation? Okay, let's understand what the superluminal expansion of the universe means. When you say that the particle, that a particle is traveling at the speed of the expansion of the universe, it doesn't mean it's traveling through space-time. It means space-time itself is expanding. Imagine you have a birthday balloon. You you blow it up and it becomes bigger, right? So let's say you have an ant sitting on a balloon, which is of this size. And you're blowing the balloon, the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So without moving, the ant which is sitting on the surface is getting further and further away from any point on the balloon. Right? So as the balloon expands, without traveling on the balloon, without walking on the balloon, just by sitting there, the ant is getting further and further away, further and further away because of the expansion of the balloon. The expansion of the, of the universe is something similar to that. It's an accelerating expansion. Space-time itself is expanding. So a particle is not traveling through space-time. It is just sitting in place, but the space-time itself is going further away. And the further you are from here, the further the, the, the acceleration is and the faster that particle is getting away from, from us. And there comes a point where the expansion of the universe is superluminal from our perspective, which means that it's expanding faster than the speed of light, which doesn't break the rules of general relativity. It, it's because it is not something that is traveling through space-time faster than the speed of light. It means the space-time itself is expanding faster than the speed of light, which is something that we experience during the phenomenon of inflation in the very early universe in which the universe expanded superluminally, faster than the speed of light. And it's still happening right now as we go further away. So what that does is that every second that we exist, there are parts of the of the universe that are going beyond our observable horizon. Which means that the observable universe every single second is getting smaller. Because there are parts of the universe that are now expanding beginning to expand faster than the speed of light, which means we can never see them again. They're going beyond our observable limits. And eventually, after several billion years, all we will be able to see because of the acceleration, accelerating expansion of the universe, eventually all we will be able to see is just our local galaxy. By that time, our galaxy will have merged with the Andromeda galaxy. So if humans still exist at the point, the only thing they will know about the universe is the local galaxy, nothing else. Because everything else would have uh, expanded away with the expansion of the universe. So that is what we mean by the universe becoming, the observable universe becoming smaller. It's because it's expanding so fast. So particles become non-existent from our perspective because they go beyond our observable horizon. 
so they don't go back in time time doesn't freeze time dilation happens only when you're traveling inside space time time dilation doesn't apply when when the space time itself expands and goes further away so that's something you will understand if you actually study let's say special relativity or general relativity but that's what i can say in in brief okay sandeep says my question is about the geopolitics around the, the north pole according to many analysts the polar regions will become more accessible and hence more strategic in the future because of climate change russia us canada and scandinavian nations have an advantage because they have a presence there do you think tropical nations like india will miss out on this or is the whole polar geopolitical angle overrated good question very good question let's go back to the to the map where is the map okay let's go back and take a look at the polar regions so the north pole is somewhere here it shows me a flat representation so the north pole if you can see my mouse pointer it's somewhere here and as the earth's climate gets warmer the polar regions which have throughout most of recent history been covered in ice will become more open you you will see navigation becoming possible in these regions and many nations will start taking advantage of that i'm sure there are lots of uh, mineral resources and other resources available there which are currently locked up inside the ice that may be freed up so russia has a prime position there so does canada so does the us and so do certain scandinavian countries because they have this geo- geographical proximity to the north pole region the chinese they call themselves a near arctic country and they currently have a good relationship with the russians which means that they might get access through russia to the polar regions the chinese are already calling it the polar silk road they will send ships and icebreakers through this region to uh, to engage in trade and transportation and, and things like that and they may also be allowed by the russians to maybe engage in drilling offshore work and things like that if the things work out fine so the, so the chinese may have access to the polar regions through russia now india as you as you, as you rightly say is a po- is a is a tropical country it's far away from the polar regions from the north pole so what does india do well let's take a bigger picture look at geography let's go straight south of india what do we find we find antarctica we have unimpeded access to antarctica nothing stands in our way if you stand at the beach in somnath and you look south and you go south you will have a direct access to antarctica if you if you take a ship and go south you will reach antarctica without anything coming in the way so india can access antarctica it is hard for india to access the north, the north pole region but the south pole region is much more accessible from india's perspective of course right now there is this moratorium on exploiting antarctica antarctica is the only unspoiled continent as of today the untouched continent no exploitation of its resources is currently allowed many countries including india have scientific research stations in antarctica and maybe in the future as the geopolitical situation changes as the world order changes even antarctica unfortunately may become open to uh commercial exploitation in which case it will be not very difficult for india to get involved in that from the north pole perspective it's difficult because of the geographical situation but from the south pole perspective it's much easier for india so that's 
the current situation. Sparsh says, in yesterday's episode, you showed a map of US bases in Germany. I noticed that most of the bases were in West Germany and almost none in the East. Why is it that even after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany, the US did not open any new bases in the Eastern part? Does the US not feel the need to open more bases in the country? And a related question, recently Germany announced that it will invest about $150 billion in defense. What are the potential implications of this increase in the budget? And how does it impact Germany-NATO, Germany-US and Germany-Russia relations? The first question is about the U.S. bases in Germany. Uh, most of the U.S. bases are in East, are in West Germany. Uh, the reunification happened in the early 90s, 1991, thereabouts. And there was a long period of reintegration because the, the lifestyle, the, the living standards, the economy of East Germany was terrible. It was way lower than the rest of Germany. And uh, for for the longest time, I think the people of West Germany had to pay an additional tax just to support the rebuilding of East Germany. I believe it may still be in place right now, if I'm not mistaken. So so that's how it was. Now, all of the American military bases were in West Germany. I think that there was no real need or reason for the Americans to open bases in East Germany because the whole of the country was now under NATO control. So they had control anyway. And the purpose of these bases was to uh, essentially target the USSR. The the purpose of NATO was to encircle the USSR, to counterbalance the USSR. And now that the USSR was gone, Russia was in place. At that time, Russia was very weak, a very weak, broken economy. The, they broke the economy further using the, the proxy of Boris Yeltsin. So I think there was no real need for the Americans to put bases in East Germany. It's just a few hundred kilometers here and there. And the real purpose of the bases was to have planes and missiles in place that could target Russia on demand. So that's a purpose they are already able to serve with the bases that they have in West Germany. So I think it was just not necessary. It was not needed. It did not serve any real purpose. That's what I imagine it would be. Now, the second question is about the increase in the German defense budget, about $150 billion. The potential implications, the straightforward implications is is that it's going to boost the American economy because all of this hardware, military hardware, will be bought from the US. So it's great for the US economy. It's great for the US military-industrial complex. They will be able to boost production, manufacturing, maybe add a few jobs to their economy, good for the US. So how does it impact Germany, NATO? It will make NATO stronger. It will it will bolster the US economy and make NATO stronger. So it's win-win for the US. It's good for Germany as well because Russia is now more assertive, more proactive. So that's how it is. And how will it affect Germany-Russia relations? The relations will remain more or less the same. Uh, the relations aren't terribly bad. I mean, the Germans are buying large quantities of of Russian gas. The whole of Europe is doing that. That will continue. Of course, with the new hardware, the Germans... See, the Germans don't really control their military. Germany is a country that's under US military occupation. Everything is under de facto control of the US. So uh, it's going to give the US a little bit more hardware to play with 
in in the NATO regions. And that may not be a very good thing for Russia in the long run. The Russians may also ramp up defense production and maybe increase if they can, if they can afford to, the size of their military strength. So essentially, it's it's a good thing for the US. That's what I can say. Rishit says, there's a famous line that time is meaningless in quantum mechanics. What does it mean and how is it possible? Time is meaningless in quantum mechanics. What does it mean? So the thing is this. So in quantum mechanics, time is understood to be an external concept, a classical concept. It is external to the system under consideration. Let's say we are talking about the evolution of, of an electron. So we are considering the evolution of the electron in time. The electron has a wave function and so on. And we have the Schrodinger equation which, which governs it. There is a time-dependent Schrodinger equation and so on and so forth. So time is a consideration in, in quantum mechanics, but it is an external factor. It's a classical concept. It does not emerge out of the theory of quantum mechanics itself. It is external to the theory. It is something that has taken as something that already exists. Now, in general relativity, for instance, you have the situation that space-time tells matter how to move. And the matter tells space-time how to curve, which means that in general relativity, space-time is dynamic. Gravity is a manifestation of the geometry of space-time, which is why general relativity is also called geometrodynamics. But no such thing exists in quantum mechanics. There is no relationship apart from this external relationship between time and the system under, under consideration. Uh, so we don't know what quite what time is. It doesn't emerge out of, out of quantum mechanics. Right now, there is this... Uh, research that indicates that possibly time could be an entanglement phenomenon, something that emerges out of quantum entanglement. So that is still something that's ongoing. We still don't quite know. Time is still a concept that is not very well understood. We don't quite know what time is. Time is very mysterious in physics, in the whole of physics. We don't know what time is. Where does time come from? Is it an emergent phenomenon? Is it something that is external to all systems? Are there atoms and molecules of time? We don't know any of that. So time, as of today, is external in quantum mechanics, which means that's why some people would say that it is meaningless in quantum mechanics. Yeshavardhan says, is it possible to understand Vedas after graduation? Is it crucial to know Sanskrit in order to understand the Vedas and other Indian teachings? Is it too late for people and above 20 to relearn ancient Indian philosophies and knowledge. It is possible to understand the Vedas anytime in life, even before graduation, even after graduation. You have to put in the time to study the, study the texts. Is it crucial to know Sanskrit to understand the Vedas and Indian teachings? It helps a lot. If you don't know Sanskrit, then you have to rely on translations either into Indian languages or in English. If there is, If you are relying on a translation in an Indian language, let's say Hindi or Bengali or whatever language you prefer, or Kannada, or Tamil, whichever language you prefer, then what we find is that translations from Sanskrit to Indian languages are quite accurate. But translations from Sanskrit to English are often very unreliable because they are typically done by Western professors and those cannot be trusted, unfortunately. There have been many, many instances, many cases of deliberate distortions and mistranslations. There is this very infamous example of the translation of the Bodhayana Shrota Sutra by 
by by Romil Thapar, in which an in which a westward migration of Indians was distorted and misinterpreted as an eastward migration of Indians. That's what Romila Thapar did. And this was comprehensively debunked. Right. So this was a translation from Sanskrit to English. So this is just one example. Lots of such examples exist. And therefore it is, I would say it is important to, to read, to study the Vedas, other teachings in either an Indian language, a modern Indian language, Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Gujarati, Marathi, Hindi, whatever. Or in Sanskrit itself, if you can. So that is the right way to learn it. Indian uh, English translations are not typically reliable. I, If you want to study the Bhagavad Gita, I would highly recommend the English translation of Vibek Debroy, which I think is the best translation I've come across. There are many English versions of the the Bhagavad Gita. I don't recommend any of those except the translation by Bibek Devroy. It's a straight translation. There is no mumbo jumbo in it. There is no interpretation. It is a straight translation. That's what you should study. So that is one English translation that I would recommend. I would not recommend any other English translations. And the third question is, is it too late for people about 20 to relearn ancient Indian philosophies and knowledge? No. It's not too late. You can certainly begin after 20. Why not? So do that. All the best. Ganpat Vagela says, many Sri Lankans are coming to India because of the current economic situation in the country. My question is, how will it affect India economically and socially? See, socially, there's not... So how will it affect India? As long as the influx of refugees is small... It's not a problem. India can absorb a few dozen refugees, maybe a couple of hundred refugees or something like that, maybe even a few thousand refugees. But if it becomes large numbers, like thousands of people coming in, that becomes a problem for the local economy because who's going to feed these people? Who's going? They will need accommodation. They will need to be fed temporarily, however long they stay in India and so on. So that's going to be a burden, a stress on the Indian economy. It can be handled for a certain period of time, but if it becomes a long-term phenomenon, then it becomes a problem. It becomes a strain on the Indian economy. We are not a dharamshala. Actually, we are. That's what we have been turned into. Anyway, that's a different story. So, if there are too many refugees coming in, then it could become a problem. It could become a strain on the local economy. They would come into Tamil Nadu. Where else will, will they go? Because that's... That's the geographical region where that abuts Sri Lanka. Let's look at the map in case you are not aware. The place they would come to, the closest place to Sri Lanka is uh, Danushkodi Rameshwaram, which is parts of Tamil Nadu, right? So that's where they, where they would come. So it would become a stress, a stress, stressor on the local economy. And if there is economic stress, there is social stress also. So that's the only thing. Apart from that, the Cultural factor is not an issue. The culture is the same. Whether it's the Sinhalese culture or the the Tamil culture, culturally it's the same. And mostly I imagine it it would be people from Northern Sri Lanka, which means the Tamil people would come in. So what needs to be be done is that India needs to happen that the situation in Sri Lanka doesn't go out of control. I think it's going to be up to India to kind of rebalance and uh, stabilize Sri Lanka to some extent. 
then it's going to be best for india and for sri lanka as well if india intervenes and doesn't let china or some other country intervene because then the sri lankans will have to pay a big a heavy price for whatever um for whatever aid they get right so that's what i can say so i hope this refugee thing doesn't become a big big factor and i hope that the situation is brought back under control soon Pranav says, "What should we do as youth of India to make this country a world superpower again? You cannot do anything directly, but what you can do is to make India a superpower. Every person, what they can do is reach your fullest potential. Right? That's what you should do. If you have a country of people, young people who have reached only half of their potential, that's going to be a mediocre country." if you have a country of young people who are not ambitious who are mediocre then the country is going to wallow in mediocrity but if you have a country of young dynamic people who reach their full potential who maximize their potential in which whatever field they, they are then you will have a country that is progressing rapidly and a country with a great future so you have to de- first of all determine whatever you are best at what is your aptitude what is what is your the thing that you are really good at so not everybody can be a scientist not everybody can be a business person not everybody can be an entrepreneur not not everybody can be a programmer not everybody can be an artist but everybody has something that they are good at so find whatever it is that you're good at and do your best to excel at that and achieve your fullest potential as a professional as a creative person as whatever you are and also economically and financially because if you become prosperous you can create more jobs and you can make the country more prosperous so that in short is what the youth of india should do to make india eventually a superpower again all right my friends there are so many more questions but i think i'm at the end of today's session it's almost 2 hours so thank you very much for all the questions thank you for your viewership i really appreciate it thank you for all your support in whatever way it is i really appreciate it and i will see you in next weeks episodes until then take care have a good day have a good night thank you bye